what would it look like for you to live your life with grace? From Well Played, this is Superhumans. 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 Who is a superhuman? Superhumans is what we become when we allow our story to serve as medicine for others. I'm your host, Gotham Galati, better known as Dr. G. As someone who once prescribed pills, I now prescribe stories as a form of medicine. On today's episode, we have a courageous superhuman, Christy Rapska Noonan, who shows us how to experience loss with grace. With a compassionate desire to help others through her story, Christy opens up about her heart-wrenching struggles with pregnancy and how in the face of hardship, hope can serve as our guide going forward. My husband dropped to his knees and I remember grabbing his hand and we just squeezed each other's hands so hard. And for me, now I was just mad. But all I said to the doctor was, can we go now? Before we hit play, a quick word of caution. This episode contains some graphic content and is intended for mature audiences. Do not consider this medical advice. Please consult with a health professional should you need medical attention. As you listen, think about how you see yourself in Christie's story. I'll see you on the other side of the story. As I grew up, I learned a lot about being a boy. I was tough. My parents had divorced at a young age, so I grew up primarily with my dad and my older brother. Remember in kindergarten, I threw I, I got sick, I threw up, went to school anyway. When I was six, I, I broke my arm and I had a cast all the way up to my, you know, halfway up my, past my elbow. And uh, played t-ball anyway with one arm, threw a plastic bag over it, went swimming, you know, it didn't stop you. And so that became a large part of who I was through everything, through school, through work, well into later parts of my life. It was interesting as I got older because as I got closer to, you know, finding a husband, um, thinking about a family, this, this idea of, of who I was and, and, you know, I was, a tomboy growing up and I could, like I said, I could hang with the guys, no problem. But the thing that I didn't know how to do as well was be a woman, be a wife, be a mom, be domestic. So frankly, you know, I was terrified to be a mom. Terrified. But of course, I wanted a family. I met Brendan and, and um, you know, I was in my early 30s and I never realized how little I knew myself until I met him. 
um, because he he really saw me for things that I didn't even see in myself. And so meeting Brendan, it was just, you know, he, he saw me and, um, I never really realized how important that was. Um, we got pregnant shortly after, you know, within a year after we got married about 32 weeks in, we went to the doctor and he was measuring along just as he, 32 weeks, 34 weeks, we went to the doctor and he was still measuring 32 weeks. And so that kind of raised a flag and was like, okay, wait a minute, is, is something going on here? Or is it all just fine? Um, they started having me come in twice a week for monitoring just to make sure it was okay. You know, neither Brendan or I are, you know, very, very large people. We're both pretty small. So it could have just been that he's a small kid because we were, um, or it could be something was going on. Um, eventually, after a couple weeks of monitoring, they um, had confirmed that he actually had stopped growing. And so they decided that they would induce me because they would be, he would be better off and it's easier for him to grow outside than inside. And so right around 36 weeks, they sent me in to be induced and he was born and everything was fine, but he was only three and a half pounds. So he was a tiny little thing. Um, and of course, that in and of itself brought its own challenges. You know, being a this tiny, tiny little baby, he spent about a week and a half in the NICU, and at the time, that was the most that was the most challenging thing I had ever been through. Was to see my see my little baby hooked up to tubes, a feeding tube, and in an incubator, and just trying to get strong enough to go home and uh you know when I was pregnant with him we used to say like I'm gonna grow that baby um we're gonna get him big enough but then I remember the day that we went home without him and driving away from that hospital without your kid is one of the most heart-wrenching things you'll ever experience and at the time, we didn't know for sure if we'd be able to bring him home. We hoped so. He was, you know, he was seemingly healthy. We thought we thought that it was no big issue. But, you know, here he is, three and a half pounds in the NICU. You don't really know. Then uh, about 10, 10 days in, um, he was able to come home. He finally hit four pounds and he was able to come home. Um, he's super healthy. He's now four, um, rambunctious as can be. Um, super, super energetic um, and just like the biggest heart. A couple of years in, we got pregnant again and really wanted to have a have a sibling for Jackson. Um, the pregnancy itself was pretty textbook. I mean, I was I was in pain 
so much. I was, I had a ton of morning sickness. I had to go on medication because I was so sick, but you know, it was all, all normal pregnancy stuff and everything started to fall in place. Everything started to make sense. We've got our new home. We've got Jackson. We've got another baby on the way and everything is wonderful. Or so I thought. And looking back, I remember pretty vividly when it all started to get relatively bad. I remember walking down the hall at my office um, and somebody that I barely knew from the IT department was walking the other way towards me. And he just looked at me and he said, are you okay?" And, you know, of course, I'm like, yep, I'm fine. You know, I'm, I'm walking slow and I'm waddling. And it was, you know, again, looking back on it now for someone who barely even knows me to look at me and wonder, just walking down the hall, like wonder if if I'm okay, um, was actually a pretty notable, notable moment that at the time I didn't even really think anything of. Um, I wasn't able to eat dinner by this point. I remember sending Brendan a text one night, like, can we just have soup? I can't, I like, I don't have an appetite at all. Um, I was drinking so much water and liquid. I was going through like a hundred ounces of liquid a day at this point. Um, and I just couldn't figure it out. finally was so sick that I finally started staying home from work, which was pretty odd. Um, I always am one, you know, I mentioned before, I, um, I, no matter how you feel, you just keep, you just keep moving forward. You just keep pushing through. And so, you know, there was no, for me, there was no, like, I'm not going to stop working before I have the baby. I'm going to work up until the end. And so, um, of course you can maximize the time for maternity. And so I was just constantly uncomfortable. And on top of it, of course, you know, I was working my butt off. I was working long hours. My team at the time at work was, was actually down a couple people. So I was, I was, you know, in overdrive trying to do my own job, plus trying to fill in for some of the open, open roles that I had on my team. And it was just, you know, it was all kind of coming to a head all at once. So this Thursday, I stayed home from work again, and I remember about midday, I was sitting on the couch working, and the baby started moving a lot, like a lot. And the way the baby would always lay, my my stomach was always kind of lopsided because how she was how she was laying in there, and her head was over to the right hand side, and um. This particular time, she was moving so much, and she kind of settled in on the other side. And I remember taking a picture of my stomach because it looked so weird and lopsided the way that she was laying. And I sent it to my sister-in-law. And um, at this point, I'm, I'm still like so sick. I can't walk. I can't get up. I can't do anything. You know, I'm barely leaving the couch. Um, I got sick that afternoon. Um, I was my abs hurt. 
I was constipated. I had heartburn. I was nauseous. I was vomiting. I mean, you name it, I had it. It was just miserable. And I remember I finally called the doctor that day. This had been going on now for almost two weeks, um, just getting progressively worse each day. I finally called the doctor and just kind of explained some of my symptoms. And you know, they said, well, you're nine months pregnant. That's what pregnancy feels like. You know, and of course, the tough, the tough me was like, here you go. You're just, you're just complaining. It's not that bad. You know, it's not that big of a deal. Suck it up. And the doctor, the midwife that I talked to had said, you know, just go get some Pepsid for the heartburn. Maybe try some bananas. If you really can't keep anything down, you know, get some, get some protein shakes or something and, you know, um, call us tomorrow. Thursday night, I never left the couch. I couldn't actually get off the couch to walk up the stairs to go to my bed to sleep, and so I slept on the couch. I woke up super early in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, and I still was just tossing and turning all night long, couldn't sleep, was so uncomfortable. Um, Everything hurt, everything was in pain. I finally went up to my bed about four o'clock in the morning to try to get some sleep. And later on that morning, I woke up and um, sure enough, two conference calls. I had to be on those conference calls. So 10 a.m. I had a call, 10.30 I had a call. And that's when everything started, um, started going downhill, which I didn't know at the time. But um, at this point, my, my, my stomach was hurting so badly. My, my abs were hurting. My upper right side was hurting. Um, and I barely got off that conference call. I could barely even say goodbye to everyone on the call. I texted my husband and I said, Hey, I think, I think I'm having contractions. And so by this point I was having a hard time even sitting up. Um, so I just laid on the bathroom floor until my husband got there. While I was laying there, I started feeling a little bit of the water trickling out. Um, and I was like, this is, this is new to me. This didn't happen with Jackson. I, I guess this is what it feels like when your water breaks, right? And um, yeah, I guess so. And then I, I was able to make it to the to the bathroom. Um, and sure enough, then more pregnancy related things happened. I'll go into the gory details. But sure enough, I was in labor. Um, and there was absolutely no question that I was in labor. And, um, you know, part of me was actually excited because I'm like, wow, this is, this is what normal surprise labor feels like. I get to have that story. It's not scheduled. It's not planned. You know, um, part of that was really exciting. And then the other part was terrifying because we knew she was still breech and we knew that probably meant there would be an emergency C-section because this wasn't <laughs> happening as planned. So that, um, brought its own, you know, fear with it. Um, as we got to the hospital, there were a bunch of cars there. So of course we park illegally. And the biggest thing on my mind is I'm in so much pain at this point. I I can't even describe how much pain I was in. Um, Brendan had to get a wheelchair. I couldn't even hobble in to the hospital. Um, and again, this is all notable because, you know, he's never seen me be in pain. I've never been in pain like that to where, you know, you would actually admit it, right? (laughs) Like I'd always, 
it's not that bad. I've got this. No problem. And this was just a whole different story. And so, weirdly, I remember that whole path so vividly. We got into triage, and I was begging the nurses to get me back there. And um, I remember they... As they were getting me checked in, they sat me right in front of the door to triage, but also right in front of another couple. And I was facing them and they were just, you know, as calm as could be. And I am sitting here like in the most pain ever. And I hated them for being so calm. I just hated them that they didn't, that they weren't feeling the pain that I was feeling. And um, finally, they got me into the, the triage room and they hooked up the Doppler and started to get all my, you know, all the things put on me to check my vitals. And they started running the Doppler over my belly. And, you know, at this, t- at this point, I'm like kind of in it, kind of not, not really. Pay- all I could think about was the pain. And so it took me a little while to realize that they weren't hearing anything. And... Um, They kept running the Doppler over, and the nurse finally said, "Um, I need to bring someone else in. I can't pick up the heartbeat. I need to bring in someone else to check it as well. They brought someone else in. The same thing happened. And then they said, we're going to bring in the doctor, and we're going to bring in the ultrasound because we still can't pick up a heartbeat. And uh, the word started getting around that we were in labor. So some text messages started coming back, you know, congratulations, good luck. This is so exciting, things like that. So as we're sitting there in the hospital room and the ultrasound comes in and they hook that up. And this is finally the third time that they tell us and they finally say it with certainty. There's no heartbeat. My husband dropped to his knees. And I remember grabbing his hand. And we just squeezed each other's hands so hard. And for me, now I was just mad. I had been in so much pain. And here I am now at the hospital and they tell me that my baby's dead. In my head, all I was saying was, if I can't bring my baby home with me, then give me the fucking epidural and get it out of me. But all I said to the doctor was, can we go now? Our doctor had finally met us there. She had no idea what had happened. None of us knew why. There was nothing wrong with the pregnancy. We didn't know what was going on. Um, they wheeled us to labor and delivery and you know, essentially trying to figure out what's next. Um, do we do a C-section? Do I give labor? I don't really know. Where's my epidural? 
I sat there for what felt like hours and I just kept begging still, where is the epidural? Just give me the epidural. And they kept running labs and kept running labs. And it, we started to pick up on some weird things and we didn't know why it was taking so long. And even my doctor at this point was like, what is going on? Can someone just get this? Can someone just get her something for the pain? And finally, gosh, that was all around noon that we got to the hospital and around four o'clock, four hours later, they finally came back and said, Christy, you're very, very, very sick. And we can't give you an epidural. And the only thing that's going to get you better is to deliver this baby and we have to take you to the ICU. And no, you can't have an epidural. And no, we can't do a C-section. So we're going to do this the old-fashioned way. And so for the next four hours... We pushed and we pushed and I couldn't have any water. <laughs> I was so parched. I remember the only thing that I wanted was chapstick. And we joked around. They finally were able to find a little tube of Blistex and we joked around about how expensive that little tube of Blistex probably was. And, uh... I couldn't drink water, but they gave me these little popsicle-looking things with a sponge at the end of it, and they would dip it in water, and I could suck on the sponge. And so my husband just stood there next to me, holding my hand and giving me dips of water whenever I wanted it. I would sit there and watch the clock. They had, um, you know, I couldn't have the epidural, but they gave me some other um, significant pain medication to try to help whatever they can. Um, they gave me fentanyl, and so... I was watching the clock and every time I could push that button for more pain medication, I would push that button and I'm trying to deliver this baby breach. So eventually as I'm giving labor, they have to use the forceps to try to get her out. And at 8.30, she was finally born. She was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. We didn't know she was a girl until we were in labor. At one point, the nurse asked, what would you like us to call the baby? And we looked, both looked at each other and we said, well, we don't even know. We don't even know if it's a girl or a boy. And so they had called back to the doctor's office to find the records and they told us it was a girl. And um, at that moment, we knew what her name had to be. It was after my... My grandma, my grandma Rabska, Dorothy Grace. And at that moment, we knew that she would just be named Grace. There was, there was no other name for her. And so that's what we named her. And uh, when she arrived, we got to hold her. She was cold. And bits of her skin had started to peel off already. She had a little spot on her nose that had peeled back, part of her ear. But other than that, she was perfect. 
They cleaned her. We dressed her. I actually asked if we wanted pictures, and at first it felt weird and morbid and disrespectful. But we knew, I knew we needed to have some, and so we took some pictures, and eventually my husband said, okay, that's, that's enough. Just started feeling weird. About 30 minutes later, they said, we've really got to, we've got to get you going. The social worker had come into our room. And I remember being so mad. She walked in and she just said, hi, you know, we're really sorry for your loss. And just want you to know that we're here for you. And we've got lots of resources for you. And what kind of questions do you have for me? <laughs> I was so mad at that question. And all I could think to say was, how do you tell a four-year-old that his sister died? He didn't get to meet her. Everything happened so fast. Didn't even cross our minds. But he didn't get to meet her. He did get to come to the hospital to see me, and we had to sit down and have the conversation with him. And we had decided early on that we were going to be totally honest. We were going to tell him everything. But we were also very careful about how we told him because we didn't want to tell him that we were sick because then every time somebody got sick, he thought they would, he would think they would die. So we just said, mommy and the baby had a disease and mommy has to stay in the hospital to get better. But the baby was too small. And her body just didn't, wasn't able to handle the disease. And so she died. And somehow that just made sense to him. Wasn't easy, but it made sense. There's so many questions they asked. Did you want to bring the body with you? Do you want us to send it to a funeral home? Do you want us to keep it here? But that felt weird. Everything felt weird. Everything felt wrong. Nothing felt right. So many decisions that needed to be made that we weren't prepared to make. And we only had 30 minutes to decide. Because then they said, you're really sick and we've, we've got to get you to the ICU. I spent the next four days in ICU, in a bed, not moving. <laughs> uh, we found out that later we found out the condition was acute fatty liver of pregnancy was the name of it. And it was extremely rare. Um, very little data on it. One in something like 20,000 people get it. Um, there was no rhyme or reason to why we would have gotten it. And, uh, there is no cure. There is no treatment. The only treatment is to deliver the baby and get put on supportive measures and hope that your body recovers on its own. And, um, gosh, our village, our village showed up. So much our village showed up. But as we left the hospital that night, it's nine o'clock at night. 
the same feeling that I had when we left the hospital without Jack came rushing back. Only this time we knew that we weren't going to be able to come back to the hospital and get her. You know, people say weird things when you, people say weird things with any kind of trauma or grief or loss or anything, but they say really weird things when you lose a baby and it can make you angry, um, resentful. But this grief counselor shared with me one of the best things that helped me think navigate a lot of that. You know, I, I struggled because a lot of people would say, oh, you know, I know so-and-so who went through the same thing. And I started to hate that saying, you know, and I want every time I wanted to say, really? Like, and I went through all the whole list of everything. Did that, did that happen? Because if not, then it wasn't the same thing, you know? And I think, Everybody, when they go through something so traumatic, no matter what it is, it can't be compared to anything else. Like that trauma is unique to you. It's yours. No one else has gone through that. No matter how similar circumstances may be, no one has gone through that in the way that you did. And so, you know, I think people, when they go through things like that, they just want to be seen. They just want to be validated that what they went through was was just hard and it sucked, right? Um, this grief counselor said, you know, when people say those things, they're not trying to be mean. They're not trying to be inconsiderate or thoughtless. It's just anxiety. People are so uncomfortable with these difficulties, with these feelings, with with this topic and with, with uncomfortable comes anxiety. So if you can see it for what it is, which is anxiety, you might be able to let it go. And she was right. Like every time something would come up in the future, I saw it for anxiety and not the person, you know, not that person saying or doing something wrong. It was just, they didn't know what to do. And I eventually got to a place where, you know, People would bring it up and, and, uh, or I should say people would ask a question and I would tell them what happened and they would get, you could, I could just see the discomfort wash over them. And, um, you know, they would, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't know. And I'm like, that's okay. Of course you, you, like, you couldn't know, you know? And I think that for me was my first experience with the act of grace. was being able to give people grace in the face of this discomfort that was so prevalent around this topic. And one topic that's very common amongst lost parents, families, is how do you answer the question, how many kids do you have? And um, for me, I just decided early on, like, she's my daughter, I will not I will not not recognize her as that. And so, you know, I 
tried out a few different responses to that question, but ultimately I think my go-to now is um, I have a four-year-old boy named Jackson and I have a daughter in heaven and her name is Grace. I learned how to play the ukulele, <laughs> talking about self-care. I signed up, Jack and I took a ukulele class together. And, you know, of course, at the time he was, what, three and a half at the time, maybe four, three and a half. Anyway, um, he wasn't playing a ukulele. He was just running around the room like a crazy kid. <laughs> But I learned a few things, and um, it was awesome because I didn't really expect anything to come out of it. I just said, you know what, this would be fun for Jack and I to do. And then as we approached Grace's ceremony, the song that we had played for her was called Dancing in the Sky uh, by a pair of sisters, Danny and Lizzie. And um, that was Grace's song. Shortly after the ceremony, I actually learned how to play it on my ukulele. And that was never part of the plan, right? Like that was never part of, you know, I didn't set out to say, I'm going to learn how to play the ukulele so I can learn the song that we played at my daughter's funeral. <laughs> but it happened. And now, like, that's something that I can take with me. And that's, that's the kind of thing that just gives me hope. Um, every, every little thing is going to be all right. And if I believe that, then... You know, we can get through. As someone with children myself, it's hard to imagine a loss of such gravitas. Every time I listen to her story, it brings me to tears. Tears of both sadness and joy. Sadness to witness and imagine the grief one must go through. But also joy to see Christy keep Grace's memory alive and use that immortal energy to spread hope in helping others. Despite the ongoing pain, Christy mustered up the courage to share her gut-wrenching story with the world so that others can find a way to also heal. After all, we are connected through our shared humanity. And together, we can all walk alongside Christy with grace. It's not just a name, it's a way of it's a way of being, you know? And that's what she's given us. We also have a lot more behind the scenes content to share with you. Here's our senior producer, Pamela, to tell you more about it. You might remember Christy mentioning her husband, Brendan. He wrote a storybook about Grace called Cloud Dancer to help create everlasting bonds between Jackson and his little sister. It's not yet published, but when it is, he'll be the first to know. You can sign up for updates from our storytellers and snippets from behind the scenes at superhumans.health. Also, if you'd like to read more about Grace, go to the show notes. We put some extra details in there for you. In our next episode, 
you'll hear from Dr. David Fagenbaum, who came to his own rescue as he stared down death over five times. There was a moment when I was in my hospital bed when I saw the telephone cord um, in the room and um, I thought for a moment about, about putting the cord around my neck. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help new listeners discover how story can be a form of medicine. Superhumans is made with love by a tribe of creative artists. Our senior producer and show co-creator is Pamela Rothenberg. Sound engineering and design is provided by Rob Spate. Pre-production audio engineering is provided by Jay Wujunyao. Community and social media is managed by Tara Bika. Our original theme music is composed by Daniel Brunel. And the adorable music you hear at the end of this episode is provided by Christy herself and her son Jackson. A special thanks to our creative collaborators at Hatch. From Well Played, I'm Dr. G, and you are loved.